0: Speak the charm of me. There will come a time on the planet Earth when science and technology will be long forgotten, when wizards will rule the world. This is the Arnomancy podcast. The world is weirder than we know. Join your host, Reverend Derek, in his diverse array of amazing guests in an exploration of tarot, magic, the occult and the history of Western esotericism. The Arnomancy Podcast exists thanks to the support of generous listeners like you. Please consider supporting this podcast for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash Arnomancy. Welcome back to the Arnomancy Podcast. I'm your host, Reverend Derek, and I am here today with... Uh, Frater Robert Gordon who's joining me to discuss Rosicrucianism and in particular his new book 21st Century Rosicrucianism Uh, Frater Robert received a B.A. in anthropology from the University of Melbourne and an M.A. in museum studies from University College London uh, he is. His experience includes uh, professionally managing the St Paul's Institute, which is an ethics think tank run by the St Paul's Cathedral in London. Uh, he also worked for the Archbishop of Canterbury at Lambeth Palace. I don't know what that is, but it sounds kind of creepy. Uh, <laughs> and he uh, worked for the Gard Museum, which is an independent museum devoted to the legacy of John Tradescant, and it's also the final resting place of Elias Ashmole. Fraud Roberts has also been a practicing Rosicrucian for over 20 years and is an active member of the Societas Rosicruciana in Anglia, the Order of the Rose and Cross, and Arthur Edward Waite's Fellowship of the Rosy Cross. That's basically a bouquet, right? That's they call that a bouquet in Rosicrucianism.
1: <laughs> well, I, I like to get involved, and and um, you know, there's a lot of synergy between those those orders. There's a lot of overlap, obviously, but um, yeah, mm. they, they take you in different directions. It's always nice to see things from slightly different perspectives.
0: Just in case it isn't obvious from your intro, you are a Freemason, and some of the Rosicrucian stuff you've been involved in has been uh, Masonic Rosicrucianism. The uh, Societis Rosicruciana in Anglia, or S-R-I-A in particular, is um, a uh, Masonic order that focuses on Rosicrucianism. And then, um, a
1: Rosicrucian order that accepts Freemasons as members. So it's, it's not oh, a Masonic order, as we say, but it's a Rosicrucian order that uh, only accepts Freemasons as members. Okay, okay. <laughs> it's kept a little All bit right. at arm's length in that way. Um <laughs>
0: But <laughs> yes, yeah, so,
1: so, I mean, Freemasonry was kind of one of the things that I first joined as a, when I was quite young, 21 mm-hmm. years old, in fact, back in Australia. And, and one of the, the main reasons I joined Freemasonry was so that I could then join the SRA. Um, because oh. it's something that I had heard a lot about all, all the kind of people you read about your Kenneth McKenzie's, McGregor Mathers, A.E. Waits, um, mm-hmm. Robert Wentworth Little. Um, Westcott, all of those were obviously members of the SRA, along with a bunch of other p- interesting people. So.
0: Yeah, I mean, I, that's that's true. I guess I hadn't, re- you know, I was a member of the uh, American branch, that the SRICF, um, mm-hmm. but just for a little while. Like, I only managed to go to a couple meetings. It was it was just too far away. To make meetings regularly, um, so I didn't really get to a whole lot of exposure there. But you're you also have some other really interesting uh, connections to uh, historical uh, Freemasonry. You know, uh, St. Paul's Cathedral in London was uh, built by uh, Christopher Wren. Who was uh, who was a mason, and then also Guard Museum, the final resting place of uh, Elias Ashmole. He was also a Freemason. Um, both of them a long time ago. Uh, so that's kind of cool. You have a little bit of a you have a cool pedigree.
1: Well, yeah, it's one of the kind of real benefits of having lived in London for a long time. Actually, you can mm-hmm. um, really be part of these things that that connect you back into the to the past in quite significant ways. Um, the, the interesting thing was I didn't actually even realize when I went to work for the Garden Museum at first that that was where Elias Ashmole was actually buried until I kind of started the job and then realized the yeah. significance. So it was a cool little, uh, piece of Masonic synchronicity in that way, but also heavily connected to early kind of emergence of alchemical texts, Elias Ashmole and, and that kind of more alchemical esoteric side. Rosicrucian mm-hmm. side of Freemasonry, so there's just those interesting little synchronicities that really anchor you back into the past of the tradition, but also you're you're kind of carrying it on today. It's an interesting dynamic.
0: Uh, so you said that um, one of the things that brought you to Freemasonry was that you were interested in joining the SRIA. So can you maybe tell us a little bit about? Um... What was it about Rosicrucianism that uh, that drew you so much? What, what was it that attracted you?
1: got to kind of put myself back, what, 20-plus years now. So I'm trying to not think <laughs> as I am now. I'm trying to think of well, right. what was that when I, when I was in my late teens and, and coming across all of this kind of stuff. A lot of it was about it being just very evocative. It's about that kind of secret knowledge, hidden mysteries. You know, it's, it's, it is very appealing. Um, But there was also a real sense that these people were trying to engage with that kind of uh, almost free-form spirituality outside of organized religion, Uh, organized religion for various reasons, although I did work for the church for a long time. At at that age in particular wasn't something that appealed to me too much. And so yet I still had that yearning, that sense of calling for for spiritual things and just the books I was reading about western esotericism and always seemed to be mentioning certain people and then they would always seem to be mentioning this this organization the SRIA um I think that's because a lot of the the kind of histories and and other things that were collated and easily available in paperback um were kind of came out of the likes of AE Waite and McGregor Mathers and people like that so it um I just kept seeing that pop up, and it, it piqued my interest. And then, of course, the the symbolism spoke to me at quite a deep level. It just very resonant, and mm-hmm. and I wasn't disappointed. You know, a lot of people see the Masonic Rosicrucian side of things as as perhaps a bit less uh, magical or mystical, but you know, the content is all there, and mm-hmm. uh, the the rituals and the degrees are, are very well uh produced and and contain a lot of symbolic and esoteric content. So it 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 resonated with me and I'm I'm glad you yeah, I heard that calling, I followed it and it never stopped really. So that's yeah, always a good I, sign. I,
0: yeah. I think that's a great sign. I mean your book Twenty First Century Resecrucionism, like it's it's obvious through uh through your voice in that book how uh, impactful like the concept of Rosicrucianism and the practice of it has been in your life and how much of a positive thing it's been. Like it's, uh, and even just, you know, I mean, we've known each other online for a few years now and had lots of conversations and it's, it's, it's obvious that it's had a positive impact on you. And I really, I really admire that. But I think what I would really like to do, uh, one of the things about Rosicrucianism that I think, i've found confusing in the past is like it's it's sort of a generic term it's like hermeticism right in the western in western esotericism it gets kind of thrown around and applied as a label in a lot of places and it makes it really difficult to kind of uh understand what it is so what do you what do you what is rosicrucianism I, okay, that's a really big question.
1: It's an, it is an interesting question. It actually <laughs> it <is> changes. <laughs> it changes over time. So there's there's a few things I think to unpack with that. First is Rosicrucianism, and I'm not the kind of first person to say this, but is essentially when Hermeticism meets German mysticism is is where it kind of emerges. Oh, and it's it's out of this uh, Christian Protestant, particularly Lutheran uh, circles in Germany and Austria at the beginning of the 17th century that kind of start to fuse all this stuff together. Now, what is interesting is that following on from the original manifestos coming out at the beginning of the 17th century, which mention things, you know, Paracelsus, it mentions alchemy, it calls out a lot of, you know, people who are searching for gold throughout, it takes that kind of more spiritual alchemy approach, certainly, and is speaking into that kind of Transition from uh, practical alchemy into spiritual alchemy that was really kind of taking off at that time. But it's a lot of the, the things that we think of as Rosicrucianism, its connection to alchemy, its connection to Kabbalah, those are mentioned in the manifestos, but they actually kind of really come into play post-manifestos when other people start writing into that space. So what I like with Michael Myers and Robert Flood and Elias Ashmole and, and people like that start writing what they feel Rosicrucianism is and and what it what its purpose is. All these things start to coalesce and take more form. So what I kind of like is there's this decentralised aspect to it, although we we're pretty sure we know who the original people were who. Release these pamphlets, or at least wrote them, there's some kind of debate over whether they were meant to be released as and how they were. But it's really that kind of movement that they sparked, that anybody could then write into and speak into, that starts to take form over time. And I like that decentralized nature of it. So when you say, what is Rosicrucianism, it depends a large part on what you're looking at when you're looking at it who you ask <laughs> and then of mm-hmm. course it it flourishes off into many many different directions leading up to things like the golden dawn for example and then we all know how many different branches come off of the golden dawn you know these things they just kind of take on a life of their own and that's part of what i've always found very appealing about rosicrucianism is that its founders are a bit elusive, and that mm-hmm. is part of its mystique and its mythological appeal. But it also allows people to speak into the creation of it over time and the formation of it. Essentially what it is is a, is a pretty clearly kind of Christian form of hermeticism, alchemy, Kabbalah that emerges out of Europe in that, that post-Lutheran Protestant era. And I think that continues through. But, of course, in in modern days, and I'm talking the past century or more, that that becomes even more kind of diluted and goes off in a whole host of different directions yet again. Mm. But I think if you want to boil it down, that's kind of what we're talking about.
0: Yeah, I was just sort of um, struck as you were talking about this and talking about, like, um, you know, Michael Meyer and uh, Robert Flood and stuff sort of coming in and having their own takes on it and their own approaches to it. Like, both of them are very... You know, for their time, you know, they're they're really highly looked upon, you know, amazing occultists and esotericists and mystics. Um, but I was thinking about uh, Christian Rosenkreutz himself; like he's mm. kind of this, uh, you know, this um, mythical figure that's used to illustrate the teachings of Rosicrucianism, and the way he's presented, uh, it kind of opens him up for other people to use and reinterpret and sort of add their own parables and stuff. And it made me think of this concept in the 20th century of these sort of like open fictional characters like Jerry Cornelius, where it was assumed that other authors would sort of pick them up and help them on, help their adventures continue in their own ways. Um, And I kind of, I kind of liked that, you know, I think for a long time, it's, it's so easy when you study the history of Western esotericism or when you study like the development of some of these core ideas to get really disillusioned and sort of feel like, oh, Hermeticism doesn't mean anything. There have been so many people (laughs) writing about it, taking it in so many different directions and doing so many different things with it. It just, it's, it's made the word almost lose its meaning. But then when you start to kind of look at it a little bit more and and incorporate, you know, just sort of like the development of concepts, you you can start to see themes evolve, you know, and, and concepts evolve. You know, the one that that you uh, talk about a lot in some of your um, uh, first essays in the book is uh, healing others, healing others for free. You, you, I think the phrase you use is... Um, cure it's the t- sick either. and that gratis yes. yes so that that's yes. in the farmer yes.
1: fraternitatis yes and it's mm-hmm. the the farmer itself does kind of outline a few different articles that it says this is what we're all about and and the primary one is cure the sick and that gratis and i interestingly the the kind of secondary one is is to where the habits of the cultures you're in paraphrasing slightly but which mm-hmm. I always find interesting because it's not necessarily about waving the banner of Rosicrucianism and it's also about being able to integrate into other cultures, other societies, other religions even, and act as that kind of es- esoteric healing impulse within those things without need to change them or, or feel like you have to proselytize or, or something like that. So I've always found that quite an interesting aspect of it as well. But yes, at its core, and again, this I think comes from a lot of the Paracelsian influence. It was about medicine and healing and holistic medicine, esoteric medicine. It was this kind of a very large interest of the circles of people that were involved in formulating this. And and that speaks through in what they see as their core mission. And also that's part of the kind of reformative message they have which is you shouldn't be doing this for profit you shouldn't be doing physic or medicine for profit you shouldn't be doing alchemy for profit we they call out in quite caustic terms the kind of charlatans and profiteering nature of of um the people at the time that were over commercializing things and boy you know we still have that today don't we even to a greater extent so <laughs> they were a real reactionary movement to that kind of stuff and that puts an inherent sense of this is a tradition about service to others this is not just a path of personal spiritual development although it certainly has a lot of devotional and practical aspects to it but it's one that is done so that you can then go out and cure the sick and i think over time I think perhaps, you know, in the in the original manifestos that did have a bit more of a direct medicinal uh, tense to it, but mm-hmm. I think rightly and appropriately that very quickly gets broadened. Um, what are the sicknesses we face in the world today? They're not just medical sicknesses, spiritual and mental, ideological, structural uh, issues that we face that I think that Central tenets of cure the sick speaks into, and then importantly, mm-hmm. that wonderful word gratis. So I think there's a big conversation to be had about what that means in practice. You know, can I even charge for a book? So the extremists would say no, but I think essentially what it's talking about is that you're acting in a manner that is not seeking profit. You're not trying to create a commodified relationship through the interactions that you have and through your spiritual practices that, mm-hmm. that it doesn't mean that you can't ever accept payment for things but you do it in that real spirit of acting at cost or acting in a non-profit non-profiteering manner and uh, i guess you know a lot of that comes from the fact that that you have the means and capability to do that but I, I think it just speaks into that real core of compassion and why are you doing this and what what reward are you seeking for doing it. And it's really in service is the reward that you're seeking service itself.
0: Mm-hmm. It makes me think, well, you mentioned para, para-celsus, paracelsus earlier. Um, and one of his core tenets, uh, he didn't really... Um, I mean his core tenant or his core tenant towards uh towards that sort of service wasn't uh heal everybody for free but heal the poor for free and mm. make the rich pay. But it yeah, was sort pigs. of like
1: <laughs> fair enough. Yeah, but it was
0: <laughs> because you know he you, it's still not free to live. You still have to have food and lodging and you have to get the ingredients for your medicines and you have to you know you can't just um you know Exactly. And I guess really the word gratis
1: can be extended into that kind of, in modern terminology, that that kind of pay what you want, uh, pay what you mm-hmm. can. Um, there are some people who can afford to pay for, for various forms of service. In, and I think importantly, what we're talking about is a spiritual sense here. So it does <clears throat> start to make you think about things. in a a slightly different manner, um, not Mm -hmm. to commodify your spirituality, not to over commercialize it, not to see the people you're coming into contact with as, um, sources of income. Um, I think that's quite an important part of the impulse, which can get a bit muddy in this day and age sometimes. And, and I think that's there right at the core of Rosicrucianism, if nothing else, to debate and discuss what that means, because it's it's there. So we have to talk about it at least. And then we all come to our own understandings of what that phrase gratis really means.
0: There is such a big, uh, hairy argument at the center of that. You know, I mean, we have uh, in the in the esoteric community today i mean there are plenty of people who um who make money off of their esoteric practices you know i mean i've got a patreon attached to this podcast and every once in a while i'll do like paid classes and stuff um but uh yeah i mean i also have the problem of needing to pay rent
1: (laughs) and look and i think if you're if you really take a look at how much time and effort and energy you put into this and and is is that really covering all of those things i i strongly doubt it i'm sure i'm sure your hourly rate is (laughs) is not exactly like
0: three dollars an hour (laughs) exactly (laughs) so exactly so you're
1: not doing this in a manner that is really uh, profiteering and over commodifying and and you're not doing it in a predatory manner. And I, and I think the important thing is that it asks us to consider this question. And you mm. can take that as far as you're willing to go, really, but at least consider it. And And I think it is important, particularly in this day and age when so much stuff is done digitally, and we've already got a little bit of an obfuscation of that human to human kind of contact and interaction with these kind of spiritual circles we often work in now because it's all... So much of it's online these days that yeah. you just need to make sure that you you retain that human element of it. You don't dehumanize people into just figures on a on a laptop or Patreon members, or you know you actually connect with people. And mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. The, these tools are there sometimes to allow people to to connect with a, a broader range of people or teach them the things they want to learn in a very uh, compassionate manner done with integrity but they can also be done in a way that is very exploitative of people searching for meaning and yearning and you know we can think of all kinds of different uh, dangerous groups or manipulative uh, spiritual groups that that have done that in a very negative way oh that is
0: yeah yeah i guess it it reminds you that you need to be aware of your own motives and um and when you're engaging with uh, others in the community, try to be aware of their motives as well.
1: Exactly. Yeah. And, and that goes down in, in the Rosicrucian manifestos to the way in which they're criticizing alchemists who are not just those who are doing it as charlatans, you know, the fake alchemists, which is mm-hmm. bad, bad in, its, in a very fundamental way. But those who are seeking to engage with alchemy in order to get wealthy, in order to create physical gold, in order, if that's your motivation, then you've got a conflict of interest at the very beginning of your engagement with the spiritual components of our lives. That, although it may seem you're able to, to kind of operate in that space, it, it looks can be very deceiving, can't they? And there's, it's only really a matter of time mm. before that conflict of interest comes to a head. So it just calls that out and it says there is a conflict of interest between materialism and spiritual devotion, which is widely spoken about across all religious and spiritual traditions really. They, they just, oh, yeah. I think, were also speaking into a space where I guess they had very specific things in mind as well, where they saw people charging ludicrous sums, for for the medicinal practices they were offering, or they came across many alchemists who could claim they could do all kinds of different things and and never deliver. So they were consciously calling yeah. those people out
0: and it was a lot of uh, it was a lot of um, charlatanry back then. I mean exactly. medicinal practice had not advanced much. It was exactly. still pretty and, crazy.
1: And they really wanted it's also then starts to bring in that cusp of They were bringing in a very strong scientific method to medicinal practices and wanting to combine in that very spiritual holistic sense because that was, of course, the worldview they're coming out of. But they wanted medicine to be a a very carefully practiced field and this then starts to emerge into the different strands of modern science that come out of a lot of these Kind of movements that were occurring at that time, so yeah. there's a real sense that they're trying to to really bring that into fo- into careful focus and say, well, let's do the stuff that actually works, and let's try and codify what works and why it works, and and not fool people with it and not overcharge people for it. And as you say, a big element is about service to those who. Who were previously left out of those things, I guess, or were were left to the side.
0: Mm-hmm. So when you um, when you talk about 21st century Rosicrucianism, um, I I don't want to use the word modernize here because I don't think that what you're doing is modernizing Rosicrucianism. I think that you're you're holding on to the important parts of Rosicrucianism. Uh, and kind of figuring out how to apply them to the modern world instead, uh, which I think is a is a much more valid way to do it. I'm not sure you could modernize Rosicrucianism and keep its um, its best messages intact <laughs> in today's world. Um, but what? Uh, so you um, you kind of. Uh, break down your approach into uh, three categories where you've got personal practice uh, social engagement and um, spiritual retreat uh, yes. can we maybe talk about those a little bit and hear <clears throat> yeah, some of certainly. your philosophies it,
1: so a lot of this the book itself just to kind of give a quick overview is really in three parts so the first third or so of the book is um, a modern or new, newly written sorry thesis on modern Rosicrucianism, 21st century Rosicrucianism. It gives the, the book its title, and it covers those those kind of three categories that you're talking about. The second part of the book is a collection of papers and talks that I gave on esoteric subjects over the course of just over a decade. And then the third part, the, the smallest part of the book, are some uh, – commentary pieces and short addresses I gave when I was actually working for St. Paul's Cathedral. So it's in a in a professional capacity. And what I'm trying to do by including those, because again, they were written over the course of about a decade, was to show the exoteric expression of these esoteric teachings. And so whilst I was writing a lot of the papers about uh, the esoteric nature of love or truth or sacred space or things like that. What was I then writing in a public professional persona that was literally being written in parallel? And I at least find it interesting that how those themes map over between esoteric and exoteric spheres. And so a big part of, as you say, applying Rosicrucianism is, well, how do we live it? And how do we not just live it in our personal spiritual practice, but how do we go out and into the world in our professional lives or in our charitable work or other things that we do and really make an impact. So when I was kind of thinking, and again, the, the section on 21st century Rosicrucianism was written and delivered as separate papers um, over the course of about three years. And I tried to think, well, what are the, the core components of how we relate to Rosicrucianism or indeed our own spiritual practice and path in our own lives and the three components personal practice which is your daily rhythm that really sets that tone for your life and and is very devotional in its own way and I'm and again not speaking of any specific practices or I go into some ideas about what Rosicrucianism has under its umbrella but there's that personal practice which sets that rhythm to your life and that devotional rhythm and helps you engage with these spiritual components of our being. Social engagement is then really how that is expressed in how you're interacting with others. And I think that can be something that we can often lose sight of in a way. Spiritual practice, particularly in this day and age, can feel very isolated or at least inward-looking, quite literally, I guess but it's it's really about if you're changing and you're becoming a a better example of what it means to be a, a fully functional spiritual human being you're not really just doing that for your own self or or to enter some blissful mystical state sitting in a room somewhere or at least i hope that you're not seeking just that you're you're doing that in order to then bring those experiences and the wisdom and knowledge and compassion you gain from them into the world to make it a better place. So social engagement talks about how we really apply that aspect of our spiritual life. And then spiritual retreat is that more in some ways romanticized, but also very necessary manner in which we strip ourselves back of all of the day-to-day influences that we have. So even our personal practice, it's it's very uh, rooted in our day-to-day lives. It'll be done at certain times or in certain parts of our homes or churches or whatever, uh, temples or other places where we do these more day-to-day practices. Spiritual retreat is about finding a way to remove yourself from all other influences so that you can really have a direct engagement with the divine and that is done i guess traditionally in in relatively intensive monastic forms many people in the esoteric circles would think of something like the book of abramelin or something like that which is done over you know 6 months or maybe 40 days even or something where it's where it's a very intensive uh, devotional practice and i think those things give us that kind of pinnacle example of what spiritual retreat can be and show what its purpose is, is to strip back all of our identity, to strip back all of our uh, personal obligations, responsibilities, desires, and just stand there in a very open manner to, to then receive a more direct communication with the divine. But I try and look at it in that sense of living our busy day-to-day lives with jobs and other things where you can't necessarily take six months i think we i think almost everybody listens to this I, I know off the top of my head two people who say they've they've managed to do Abramelin, for example um out of the hundreds and hundreds that i know who would probably want to so it's about how do we find moments um whether they're days or a week or even even sometimes a couple of hours that can fulfill that same function and just trying to to pick apart what does it mean to en- engage in spiritual retreat how is that different from our daily practice and then how do all of those things feed into our social engagement now these things aren't a linear process they overlap they you know they can be combined at times they can they come in and out of your lives in different balances and rhythms and and i just it was just a framework i found useful to really look at my own engagement in this in this case with Rosicrucianism and say, am I really living this? Is this something that I'm doing and not just reading about or thinking about or maybe going to a meeting of an, an esoteric order once every couple of months? But am I actually living up to these ideals and embedding them in my life?
0: Yeah, I think... Um you know, now that we're talking about it this way, the the social engagement uh, aspect of it seems to really uh, sort of overlay the the heal others piece. Absolutely,
1: um, and that that's yeah. and for me a big part of that, and and the framework that I really put it in is about utopian thinking. So there's a it is about service to others about healing others about meeting them where they're at often you know we can think of it in very charitable terms but in a more visionary sense it's about creating visions of society that are more egalitarian harmonious compassionate and figuring out how we are placed to get there we all have different strengths and abilities to influence these things so it will be different for everybody but there's a really strong thread of utopianism in rosicrucianism Johann andre who was one of the the key kind of people involved with the original manifestos wrote the book christianopolis another person closely connected is francis bacon with his book new atlantis There's other examples, Tommaso Campanella, um, which predates the manifestos, but had two of his disciples in the the kind of circle that were were involved, um, wrote the City of the Sun. These are these very utopian texts, they're quite literally utopian texts. And I find it quite interesting that we've lost a sense of positive visions of the future. So the 20th century and 21st century is very, very much about dystopian visions of the future and despite how accurate some of those were they didn't seem to do much to stop us from from achieving these things if if we think about you know orwell's 1984 or or these aldous huxley's brave new world and and we suddenly find ourselves almost living within these books that were written a century ago so how do we start to reinvigorate a sense of positive visions of the future utopian thinking and what does that mean in an esoteric mystical context is something that i explore because it is something that's inherently part of the rosicrucian tradition but also the the western esoteric tradition more broadly it has very very strong threads of utopianism in it now that can be used in both positive and negative ways i'm not saying it's it's you know it's a tool obviously but i think it's something that we don't engage with as much anymore because we're we're worried about the cataclysmic future but what does a positive yeah. future look like and how do we actually work towards achieving it
0: ooh that is a good question i mean i guess my my first reaction um when you're talking about that is uh feels like every time we write a dystopian future we just use it as a blueprint for what to do next <laughs> essentially
1: that uh, <laughs> or they just all start blending together and we get all of them at once yeah. <laughs>
0: But at the same time, we have done a lot. Uh, I mean, there have been a lot of positive social changes. It's just we've had positive and negative changes, so it's 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 a mix.
1: <laughs> That's very true, and and you know some of the pieces I look at. So the the piece closes with um, I did a, a review of a set of sermons from Martin Luther King Jr. and I, mm-hmm. it's it's really about. How do we combine that sense of spiritual impulse, that prophetic voice, that, that visionary thinking that emerges out of our spirituality and connect it to social progress and reform? And at least in the modern era, there's very few people, I think, that exemplify that better than Martin Luther King Jr. And, and so looking at, even if in only a very brief sense, how he combined in his sermons this real impulse for positive social change with a very deep-seated sense of the spiritual role of humanity and and that deep core of the divine in all of us i think that there's a real role for that and unfortunately you know i think that it can get misused very much so we have to start thinking about what is the role of spirituality in social progress how do we combine those things in a manner that is, is positive for the, as many people as possible? It works towards peace and harmony and an egalitarian mindset and, and avoids many of the pitfalls that it can go into. And importantly, isn't just about our own personal development because I find that to just be a little bit trite. and And I think there's a role we're all yearning and seeking for things and personal development is very important. But if it's just for the sake of us achieving the heights of this holy mountain, then I sometimes wonder what the end goal of that is because it all starts to feel a bit egotistical.
0: It does. Yeah. I mean, uh, one of the things that I've been really fascinated by over the last few years, um, I think probably once, I think a a big part of this happened when I started to, uh, kind of understand Freemasonry a little better was sort of that intersection between, you know, your internal development and the effect you could have in the external world, you know, sort of that, uh, uh, I think I, I think the term that I sort of came up with it with for, it was like practical spirituality. Like, does it matter how much you are developing internally if you haven't done anything to help the world around you?
1: Exactly. And is um, that development really occurring if, if you mm-hmm. don't even find a, a need to do any of that? Um, it's, again, I think a lot of this is also i found that there's that meeting point between exoteric and esoteric spheres. And, and what is that meeting point? I'm, I'm, I'm always interested in that question. And mm-hmm. what does that meeting point represent? I think represent? it's
0: uh, a Starbucks up to street yeah, for well, me I think that's...
1: Yeah, with some people on a <laughs> laptop putting down their latest, yeah. you know, esoteric <laughs> wisdom in a Starbucks maybe. <laughs> you know, there, there's some, you know, there's some little kernel of truth in that in this digital age, but but Yeah, yeah. Uh, what how are we impacting the esoteric expressions of things mm-hmm. today, particularly as they become more secular? and and i think there's still a role for us to to play into that conversation a large part of what i'm talking about in the book is that we're at this turning point in the the history of humanity really where our future evolution is not just about the societies that we create but about what does humanity even look like on a biological sense, in an inter- intellectual sense,
0: yeah.
1: we are at that cusp now where we get to decide what our future is. And when I say mm-hmm. we, at the moment, what we're really talking about is that a handful of very large tech companies and, and the people they work with are getting to decide what our, the future of humanity looks like. And, uh, and I feel that there's, that progression is happening and we need mm-hmm. to be speaking into it as as part of uh, this broad base of of people who are involved in the esoteric traditions so it's a conversation that we need to be part of because it's occurring and yeah
0: i think you know when you started off that i i, I wasn't totally sure in the direction you were going but i but i think that you can i think that i would amend that um there is a larger discussion going on all the time i think as Uh, as humanity continues to kind of like awaken and wake up and realize how it treats itself and how we treat each other and how we, um, you know, like there's this level of kind of like, uh, I think that uh, I want to call it, uh, you know, it's inclusiveness and recognition and sort of seeing that all humans are members of the same, you know, I don't know what you want to call it, I was about to say fraternity, but that—but <laughs> <laughs> we're all members of the same um, family, you know. And being able Definitely. to recognize uh, recognize that, it feels like it's something that is becoming more and more common. We are allowing people more expression, more ability to say, like, this is the sort of person I am, and then the rest of us have the opportunity to be like, okay, we will accept you as human. <laughs> um, well, I, I think that's.
1: Yeah, I, I think there's there's a lot more people yearning for that and, and mm-hmm. getting a real sense that it's been lacking um, in mm-hmm. our very kind of hyper-commercialized world. But I still do feel that although there is this very broad sense of yearning, it's not necessarily being channeled into spaces that are going to really construct a positive future. So... There's a lot of yearning out there. There's a lot of recognition that things need to change. And then there's a lot of, whether they're very consciously cynical or, or corrupt, um, people or organizations or perhaps unconsciously who are taking advantage of that yearning and, and who are using the tools we now have in order to direct people down paths that end up being quite divisive and end up being quite, um, you know, disharmonious, and mm-hmm. uh, I think that you know we we can see that that's being quite actively used to recruit if you want to use that word or to to influence people who are searching for different ways of being because they can see that they need they need to to gravitate towards something different, and so I think there's not although there's a lot of it, I think there can always be more who are speaking from a real space of integrity and respect for that divine uh, spark within all of us that don't just see people as as something to recruit, but who want to help people flourish in that yearning. And so I Mm -hmm. think that's the role that modern Rosicrucianism, modern esotericists, modern spirituality really has to play. And because it is being misused, whether it's for political purposes or commercial purposes, that sense of yearning is being commodified and propagandized and and
0: yeah, turned into really something is.
1: quite negative. And we've seen that over the last decade, in particular, really start to accelerate into areas that are very divisive. And I'm not I'm not one who just kind of wants to to sit back and hope that 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 gets better. Now, what we actually have at our disposal to do about it is another question entirely, but that's what I'm hoping at least that, that in my very small way, I'm trying to open up that conversation and say, well, how do we create uh, real influence for people who are yearning and let them find a very deep seated sense of their spiritual place in the world? that isn't exploiting them or isn't just seeing them as yet another recruit to to push a particular ideology. I don't see the stuff I'm doing as trying to get people to become Rosicrucians, for example. I mean, the book is Mm -hmm. in many ways talking to people who already feel that calling themselves and say, well, what are we Mm -hmm. all, why are we all here? So it's talking into that space. But also Rosicrucianism has always had from its very core, a very uh, pluralistic, uh, a sense of who it would work with, get involved with, have influence from it wasn't it never shied away from creating a real sense that we're all looking for the same thing, that kind of very universalist sense, even though it does come from a Christian perspective, it saw a lot of influence and as you were talking about the the legend of christian Rosenkreut it's a lot of influence from the middle east or there's other influence, cultural influences coming into it that are acknowledged as important sources of learning and expression. So I, I mm-hmm. just think that's all about that. How do we all start working together to really uplift that sense of yearning and pull it away from those spaces that are trying to exploit it?
0: Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. Um, I want to go, uh, I want to go back to uh spiritual retreat now for a second, because, you know um you mentioned a little bit about how it's kind of a challenge especially in the modern world like a lot of people might view it as a really big challenge um but you had this really great idea in in uh, in your essay which was uh kind of the the spiritual practice of turning off your mobile phone um which i really liked because it's you know i think uh a lot of um, people, when they're approaching practices like this, they see sort of these huge jumps. Like, you know, my favorite example is like the people who are trying, people who are trying to learn how to meditate and they're like, I can't meditate for 30 minutes. And I'm like, well, can you do two? <laughs> um, but like this, this idea of spiritual retreat, uh, you know, I think one of the things you, you suggest is like, well, try turning off your phone for half an hour and going for a walk. Yeah, you know, it can be that,
1: exactly. It can be that small. I, I, I would suggest in, in some ways, it's turn off the internet for a week is what I would suggest mm-hmm. and just see where you end up. Um, and I obviously, yeah, I this, mean, that still for comes, a lot of people that would require a vacation. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But, mm-hmm. uh, but that goes and says a lot about how ubiquitous our kind of social structures are. How it's very, very difficult to find ourselves outside of the umbrella of influence, whether it's mm-hmm. work emails or whether it's scrolling through news feeds or Twitter or whatever it is, or um, and just that constant stimulus, which is mm-hmm. taking us in many, many different directions, but very few of them are taking us into that experience of our own spiritual core and being able to explore that space. So again, it's, and you know, a lot of this comes from what I see in my own flaws and, and needs for improvement. And, and if you're trying to find that those small little moments of spiritual retreat, then leaving your phone at home when you go for a hike for half a day is a way to find it. And you can do that on a weekend mm-hmm. or you can go for an overnight camping in the woods somewhere. That might sound very basic and simple, but I, I just wanted people to really be able to explore these things because otherwise we, w- we never get to them because it's like, well, when am I ever going to be able to take three months in a monastery or six months in a cottage somewhere? You know, it's, it feels completely out of reach for most of us. And, mm-hmm. you know, that's not to say at all that everybody's, going to achieve the same thing by you know the people who are able to do that and who are able to structure their lives around that or find that real sense of discipline and commitment to do it will truly experience deeper and and potentially you know the the great heights of mystical experience but it's not an all or nothing equation that's kind of what i wanted to get at uh, with that exploration Mm -hmm that I think a lot of us, myself included, for, for a long time, just didn't really engage with that side of things at all because it feels so grandiose. But you can do these small yeah. things. And, and that is different for different people. Look, some people never use smartphones or aren't on the internet, so what does that do for them? Nothing. So it's about what are the things that are really surrounding you in your life that your identity is really hooking itself on, you have to remove yourself from all of that and then find a very, whether it's intensive or just quiet space that takes you away from all of those things. And importantly, it's about that difference between, well, isn't that just a personal practice? Isn't that just praying somewhere? Or And it's related to that but it goes a bit further because you're you're really trying to remove yourself even from the expectations and obligations you put on yourself with your personal practice or the ritualized nature of that sometimes and just have a very bare-faced encounter um, with the divine. It, it requires a lot of honesty with yourself. Sometimes even in our personal practices, we're never... Um, because because we're we're seeking to to do these things on a regular basis, it creates a rhythm. Are we sitting in there and saying, "Well, why am I doing this? What am I doing? What am I experiencing? Is it taking me where I wanted to go? Do we have all of those real moments of radical honesty with ourselves, where we strip back even our own personal beliefs and practices, and and just see what is in that space? Um, and I think mm. the esoteric traditions of all. Different cultures really tell us that there's something to find in that space when you strip everything back. So it's just about how do we implement things in our own lives? It's it, different for everybody that enables us to start to experience that. And then when you open that, can you then make that space a bit bigger the next time and a bit bigger? And then we, we should all still be striving for these very uh, large, kind of uh, spiritual retreat type projects should we and perhaps they're not a project but you know what i mean it's we should still be striving <laughs> well, for that yeah, that yeah that very ideal form yeah. of spiritual retreat but you don't have to to get there on day one you work towards no. it and and then that again that's about having these different parts of of how we relate to our spiritual paths are we doing enough personal practice? Um, Is that slowly developing over time our understanding of it? Are we doing enough social engagement? What does that mean in my own context? And do I feel like it's having an impact? Mm-hmm. Am I looking at moments of spiritual retreat in my life? Am I planning for it, whether it's next month or next year or five years from now? Am I actually trying to put things into place that will enable that to happen? So just by having these very broad categories and in the book, I talk about them specifically as, as to kind of how they relate to Rosicrucianism as express, expressed throughout history. But by having those broad categories, I think it just gives us a little bit of time to check in with what we're doing, which we don't always do because we just roll with emotions and wherever our desires <laughs> or interests take us. and And we never really stop to evaluate what we're doing.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think... Yeah, in a way, that's sort of a a call for greater mindfulness, um, too, just in our, just in, you know, general mindfulness, I guess. Um, So for the modern uh, Rosicrucian, how important is it, do you think, to be in a uh, Rosicrucian order?
1: It's a good question. What I've always found interesting is that the sense of an order is at the foundation of Rosicrucianism, so the anonymous Mm -hmm. manifestos are talking about a group of people that you can quote unquote join if you're worthy enough or, or you know if you if you call out, enough. <laughs> if you call out to them in the right manner yeah. now of course you know whether or not that organization ever existed it's almost certain that they never replied to anybody that that tried to reach out to them <laughs> but what ends up happening is that creates a real model at the very core of what this concept is that this is a group of people, and and so throughout history, you then have many different expressions of that, and so I think Rosicrucianism is in that sense inherently about groups that come together to explore these things. But as as time goes on, you know, this concept of self initiation starts to come into play a lot more, and and I'm. I'm not necessarily one to shy away from that, although my own experience has very much been about different orders and groups, and I can see that a lot of benefit comes from that. There's a lot of challenges too, and as we've seen throughout mm-hmm. history, a lot of times where that just serves to feed people's egos rather than actually help them overcome them. But I, I think they they do provide an important um, grounding mechanism. I think there's also there's there's a, you can achieve more, then you can alone through these things, um, both in spiritual and, and um, uh, social terms. So I think it's a balancing act. Now, most of the work you would do, even if you were involved in such an order, would be done necessarily alone. Um, you're not going to do your practice every day unless you join some kind of monastic <laughs> order or organization um, in in with other people. And even if you did, most of your time would be spent in prayerful solitude so there's that always that balance between well you're involved with a group but then the work is necessarily done within your own consciousness and within your own relationship with the divine so it's it's like all things it's a middle path isn't it you you mm-hmm. need you need both to have an understanding of the benefit of both of those things and there are so many different ways to experience it now that I think it can even be as simple as as kind of we've seen in in different areas of just having a a group of people who meet over Zoom to discuss the things that you're doing that has no organisational structure but mm-hmm. has a circle of people that you're involved with um, that you trust and can talk to and can help one another and can assist one another um, in in exploring. The hidden mysteries because they're not easy things to explore, and and I think it is it is something that's better done communally, but that can mean a lot okay. of a lot of different things. So I, I'm, oh, I'm can, not yeah. I'm not very prescriptive about saying you must join a Rosicrucian order. No, it's it's just about having an understanding of what that component adds to your spiritual path.
0: How? How? But let, if somebody was interested in joining a Rosicrucian order, how do you um, evaluate them uh, from the outside? That's this is a huge question. I, this is not a, an easy one, I guess. But like, there are, you know, there are dozens of orders that call themselves Rosicrucian, and they vary pretty widely from like, uh, you know. Uh, nearly monastic uh, Christian orders to um, to like almost n- non Rosicrucian like New Age orders, and it's sort of I guess I, what I wonder is like do you have advice for people who might want to find a Rosicrucian order? How would they uh, go about looking? Do you think?
1: Definitely, I think it's an important question because it also starts to veer into the the idea that not all spiritual groups are necessarily going to be as beneficial to the people who join them. Um,
0: yeah, yeah. And it's a tough. It's a tough. It's topic. a really <laughs> tough
1: topic, and I'm going to be very careful because obviously I don't want to okay. to name names. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. But it's um a big part of this to start with is about your calling. So when you are engaged in a a real kind of sense of spiritual exploration, you will start to hear that calling and you will start to learn how to follow it. And you'll mm-hmm. also start to learn when maybe it's trying to tell you, although we're very also good at ignoring it. Um, when when you're <laughs> perhaps doing something that you shouldn't be, or you're interested in something, oh mm-hmm. maybe there's some red flags here, or maybe it's not what I'm looking for, or maybe I'm trying to force myself into this particular box and it's not going to work. It's I think at a very fundamental level, it's about hearing that calling within, that still voice within that will guide mm-hmm. you to where you need to be. And that can take quite a lot of work to even be able to hear it. So that's part of the issue is that when people first start hearing that, they might go on the internet and they start finding all different kinds of things. And it's then, okay, well, how do I evaluate all of these different things? It's very, very tricky. But I think it's about which ones are Happy to talk to you, um, openly, um, which ones aren't necessarily just hiding behind some obfuscated sense that they are this, you know, in connection with the secret chiefs and nobody but the, the grand worthy can, can dare enter through their gates. I think those things start to, to bring up some red flags. I think that the ones that are, that are doing it quite beneficially are usually pretty accessible. They're usually pretty mm-hmm. open. You'll usually find people talking about them in this day and age. Everyone's talking about all their different experiences, aren't they? So you can tend to to get a sense of that. There are various. Um, there's a the very good website, PantsOffers.com, uh, which I has done. So I, I don't necessarily agree with everything they've done because they've they've put a bit of a scoring system to things, and and I think we can have a discussion about what they're scoring these different groups on. But at least uh-huh. as, far as, <laughs> as far as giving an overview of all the different orders that are out there, where they've come from and what they represent, I think they've done a real service to people who are looking for these things because it can be hard enough just trying to find information on what's available. And so, you know, there are some starting points now that I think have done a lot of the head work uh, for people who are looking for different things, but then I would just really say that it's about also going into. Th- you don't have to go into these things with an all or nothing mindset. So you can you can go into these things tentatively. You can meet people for for coffee or talk to them over an internet forum somewhere, or you can just kind of you know dip your toe into the water and see. Do you feel comfortable in this? Do you feel like, this is something that is going to lead you to where you will know and feel that, that you want to be. And so it's, it's a very complicated question. And it simply is. because of the nature <laughs> of Rosicrucianism, essentially anybody can call themselves a Rosicrucian group. And, and you then also have to figure out, well, what are the criteria that, that I'm looking for, because um, there's married many, many mm-hmm. different variations of it. Are you more interested in alchemy or Kabbalah or mysticism or ceremonial magic, or what are you interested in will will take you a large part down different paths. That's where something oh, like sure. the Pansoffers website has done at least a good overview of what the different groups active today um, are about. Now, you mm-hmm. know, there's some debate about whether that's obviously their perspective of the people who are writing that website. But I think from my from my experience of a number of these things and knowledge of of the general landscape of it today, they've done a pretty good job. I, I don't think there's anyone else that's that's given as clear an overview of at least what's available and and but it's talking it's, to people yeah. and talking to to people who have done it and and if they're willing to talk back and talk to you about where you're at and meet you where you're at and not pressure you to join something or not say, well, you know, the real, the real secrets are only told to you once you've been a member for 10 years and then that kind of stuff, just shy away from it because these, these, the hidden mysteries are available to all of us all of the time and we're always mm-hmm. exploring them. So there's no need, particularly in this day and age, for that kind of gatekeeping of the, the, secret knowledge of the ages. I I just find a lot of that can be a bit of a red flag. It's about, are are you able to have human to human interaction that feels compassionate and that feels like they're, they're really wanting to, to help you on your journey and not just have you be Mm -hmm. part of their journey.
0: Ooh, I think actually that last one right there sounds like a really good, uh, criteria to use, you know? But yeah, the the gatekeeping thing is really troubling to me too, Um, especially with a tradition that is um, more mystical than magical. You know, the, the, the mystical stuff is things that, you know, another human isn't supposed to be gatekeeping that for you. That's something that's between you and the divine and you'll get there when you're ready.
1: Absolutely. And, and can't gatekeep that from you, you know, Mm -hmm. um, as we've seen the history of mysticism is, is often the history of people who are getting there themselves and telling the world about it. And, and Mm -hmm. then that, that kind of prophetic voice and that visionary experiences they have are really changing how people relate to the divine. And, and there's many, many Mm, examples.
0: Yeah, sure. Yeah. This, uh, well, you know, this has been a really amazing conversation. Uh, I love how when we were planning this, you know, we, this is our, this is our chainsaw free uh, recording session. <laughs> but uh, we, when we were first talking and planning about it and we were kind of like, how can we do this without getting into the history too much? And we barely touched it. It was, uh, there, there's just so much to, um, to look at in Rosicrucianism. It, this was really uh there's there's a lot of food for thought. Thank you very much for sharing all this. Um, so your new book is uh, 21st Century Rosicrucianism from uh, Lewis Masonic, and it's available now, right? It
1: is, yes. Yeah. So if you're uh, kind of in the UK, Europe, then directly from Lewis Masonic. Um, in the US or North America, um, McCoy Publishing, M-A-C-O-Y Publishing, which is a Masonic. Um, supply company they have a website they're they're distributing it directly so that's a good way to get it for pretty close to the retail price um, without having to pay international shipping Um.
0: (laughs) and I think it's also really important to point out that uh, even though you um, got this done through Masonic Publishing uh, it is not a strictly Masonic book like this the, the way that you approach uh, Rosicrucianism, it's accessible to anybody who's interested in it. So, a hundred percent, and don't don't. And yeah. some of
1: the orders, uh, Rosicrucian orders, I belong to, are not Masonic Rosicrucian orders. As again, this is a very mm-hmm. it's a very broad, diverse um, tradition, particularly today. And 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 importantly, the book isn't. I I think anyway isn't just for people who identify or are interested in Rosicrucianism. I think it speaks a lot to those questions of, well, why are we involved in uh, hermeticism or esotericism in in that particularly Western Mm -hmm. context because that's where my experience and, and kind of knowledge comes from. Um and it asks a lot of those questions that can be applied to a lot of different things. There is there is quite a bit of history in there. There's some interesting pieces about the kind of utopian texts. There's there's some wonderful little tidbits I found about Pennsylvanian communities in the eighteenth century. Kelpius. And, and yes. Kelpius and then the <laughs> Ephrata cloister and things like that, which I again I've always found Rosicrucianism interesting because it it keeps It's one of those traditions that keeps popping its head up above the parapet. It's almost defined by popping its head up above the parapet, right? With the manifestos being published. It's almost that here's this esoteric tradition, but we're suddenly going to show you that we exist and talk about it. And then we're going to duck down again Mm -hmm. for 50 years. And then 50 years later, we'll pop up again. And and often when it does that, whether it's the manifestos or whether it's the Salon de, de Rose Croix or whether it's the Golden Dawn or other things, expressions of it, it, um, it seems to have quite a significant impact uh, when, it, mm-hmm. when it does that. So I've always found that part of it very interesting, that meeting point between exoteric and esoteric, which I think Rosicrucianism yeah, yeah. Has, has often been part of what defines it as a tradition.
0: Yeah. And the way that you um, that you uh, presented in the book, uh, it's really that sort of meeting between esoteric and exoteric is kind of uh, at the core of your approach, which I really, really appreciate. Thank you. Um, so, yeah, you're welcome. Thank you. You're the one who wrote the book.
1: <laughs> well, but thank you. I've, I've um, you know, gained a lot from your podcasts over the years. And, and again, this is oh. part of social engagement is about creating mm-hmm. these conversations, making them accessible so much information now is done because people have that real sense of mission to to getting this stuff out there um, and and I think yeah, it's really really important part of what social engagement can look like
0: uh and how else can people find you online uh, so i'm on uh, my
1: main website futureconscience.com which i've been writing now since 2009 one of those things that takes on a life of its own so that that's kind of where all my writings have been for For quite some time now, and then uh, the only social media I use these days is Twitter because I find it 's a good way to kind of connect with people you don 't know but are of like minded interest so i 'm at futurecon short for future conscience on twitter and um please do reach out i 'm always happy for people to to reach out send me things d m questions anything like that it's always i 'm here to talk i'm I'm more than happy to. Mm-hmm to have conversations about things and learn new things from anyone I, I discuss with.
0: Excellent. Uh, well, I will make sure that there are links to uh, your book, both um, at Lewis Masonic and McCoy in the show notes and your website and your Twitter so that everybody can tweet about uh, Rosicrucianism and get all excited. So thank you very much for your time and for uh, being a guest. Well, thank you
1: very much for having me. <laughs>
0: This has been another episode of the Arnomancy Podcast. Thank you for joining me. I have been your host, Reverend Eric. You can find Arnomancy online at arnomancy.com, and you can subscribe to this podcast anywhere podcasts are found. If you like what you hear, please consider supporting the Arnomancy Project for as little as $1 a month at patreon.com slash arnomancy. Vanessa Urena and I'm really excited to announce my new store, Sword and Scythe, where I'll be offering magical art, materia,
1: and services beneath Mars and Saturn. You can visit the store at swordandscythe.com,
0: and be sure to sign up for the email list to receive early access to new releases.